to serve you, to be part of this body. First and foremost, I'm grateful to God for his calling to be a son of God. Um, but to then be called to serve as, a, as an elder in this church is very, very humbling because of, because of you people. Um, to see God's work in your lives, to, to serve you is a very great privilege. And to serve you this morning is a great privilege. Uh, it's my, glad, my pleasure to be able to preach. As uh, Paul said, Paul's asked if I could uh, perhaps help, because the, given the fact we will be traveling this past week, give Paul a break from our series through the book of Revelation. Gives me a chance to revisit a message that I had um, preached before in, in the church we were part of down in Maryland. Um, we, were, we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount in, in understand what Jesus is saying. So let me just read a few verses in the passages surrounding these ones in verses 33 to 37. In chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure that verse, those words, got the attention of his hearers when he first gave that sermon. I trust it gets our attention as well this morning. So he goes on in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then on in verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then following on from our passage, verse 38, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then finally, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the purpose of reading those verses surrounding our passage today is to help us see our passage in the context of the whole of this chapter, that what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to adjust and correct to give us a right perspective on God's standards of righteousness. He's trying to correct a wrong perspective on the standards of God's righteousness. It um, reminds me in some ways of a, of a uh, story from my childhood. Um, my family, we'd love to go hiking and spending holidays in the Welsh countryside, the mountains of Wales. Uh, we grew up in the southeast of England, very flat country. Um, so whenever we got vacation time, we'd go to Wales, good mountains there. And I remember one particular vacation when I must have been eight or nine or so. And we were, were staying in a small cottage. And one day we took a, took a day hike, trying to go up a mountain called Cadda Idris. And I think we have a picture of that to show, give you some scale. In case you're interested in what, knowing what that means, I can educate you in some Welsh. Cader uh, means chair, and Idris means something else. Anyway, this mountain is um, it's, it's a little over 3,000 feet, which for my brother and I was going to be a good challenge. And after a while hiking, my, my brother and my mom decided that they had 
they would they would, were done and they decided to turn back. My brother and I, my dad and myself, we struggled on towards the summit. I've got no idea how far we got, but I do know that we, we didn't get there. We didn't get to the end. And I think you can see it's got quite a knife edge towards the top. It's quite dangerous in places. Um, but at some point, we decided that we'd had enough, uh, either by, by, based on time or ability. And we decided to return back down the mountain to my mom and to my brother, uh, me probably exhausted. Well, on that same vacation, the following day or a day or two later, we discovered a very quiet and secluded little area with a, with a really nice, small hill. Nothing particularly spectacular. It was a good spot to park the car. It suited us well. Mum and Dad could hang out in the car or take a picnic and nap. My brother and I took to this hill, and we explored this hill from every conceivable angle. I remember scrambling up over rocks and boulders with him, getting to the top, rolling back down again, climbing back to the top. We had a great day. And of course, Explorers are allowed to name their discoveries, and we just consider ourselves the discoverer of this little mountain, this little hill. And so inventively, we called this one Mini Cada Idris, in honor of the bigger cousin that beat us the day or two before. Now, as much as I enjoy hiking, I remember that my brother and I had much more fun. We felt greater satisfaction, and we felt a lot safer climbing on our Mini Cada Idris than we did trying and failing to get up the real mountain. And that's a little picture, in a way, of what Jesus is speaking in his words in the Sermon on the Mount in this, in this chapter. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers and the model followers of the Jewish law, they had taken God's perfect standards and his commandments, and they had interpreted and applied them in a way which lowered them just enough to make them a bit more achievable and a bit more comfortable, a bit more acceptable. Rather than struggle to the summit of the mountain as God had defined it, to draw close to God through obedience to his commands, over time they had grown satisfied with a lower standard, essentially to hold to their own version of rules and practices that were more, more manageable. And in this passage that we're going to look at today, as in the passages either side of it in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is seeking to correct a wrong perspective and application of Old Testament law, God's law. And specifically in our passage today, he's looking to correct a wrong understanding and wrong application about holding to our word. Jesus is not doing this because he wants his hearers, not his hearers then and not his hearers today, he doesn't want us to feel more miserable just because we're not meeting God's standards. But he, wants, he wanted them and he wants us to see our need for the gospel, to see our need for himself, for forgiveness, and for the power for obedience and for transformation. You see, whenever we lower God's perfect standards to a level which are, we are more comfortable with, which are more manageable, we will see no need for Jesus Christ and no need for his gospel. I think we see that quite clearly and more easily with those other verses surrounding the chapter. I think we, we perhaps get a little quicker um, what Jesus teaches about murder and translating that to anger. We perhaps get a little quicker what he says about adultery and what he transfers that to lust, and about loving friends and then transferring that to loving our enemies. But then we come to this passage, it's perhaps a little 
odd passage about oaths. And at first glance, we may be a little puzzled, or we may think, well, okay, that one I can do. Um, this is a bit more my level. And if that's, again, if that's what you think when you first come to this, as it did, as it did in fact I did when I first came to it, we need to hear and understand Jesus' intention behind these words and God's intention for us today to adjust our perspective of the mountain, to see God's standard of righteousness in terms of our word and holding to our word. This morning, as we rightly understand this passage, I trust that we will see that because God's standard is righteousness in our speech, we must hold to our word as we hold to the gospel. We're going to see that because God's standard is righteousness in speech, we must hold to our word as we hold to the gospel. So let me unpack that in a couple of different um, sections. We're going to look at, first of all, we must hold to our word and two reasons why that is so. Look at me again. I'm going to read um, from verse 33 again through to the beginning of 37. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. So Jesus is seeking to adjust our perspective on the mountain of God's standard by teaching we must hold to our word, firstly, because everything is spoken before God. We must hold to our word because everything is spoken before God. Jesus states or quotes, in a sense, the Old Testament law regarding oaths in verse 33 when he says, you shall not swear falsely. Some other translations may say, do not break your oath, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, those words don't actually appear in that precise form in the Old Testament, but it, it's fair to call that a good summary of God's teaching to his people Israel regarding oaths throughout the Old Testament. So, for example, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2 says, When a man vows a vow to the Lord, he shall not break his word. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 23, 31. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not be slack to pay it. And, of course, we have the third commandment, um, which is recorded for us in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So if you make a commitment in the name of the Lord, you don't do that in vain. But just like my, bro my brothers and I, my, our mini cataridris, the Pharisees and the scribes had taken God's standard and lowered it in understanding it and applying it to a level that's more manageable and more comfortable. You see, what they had held as important and taught others to hold as important was whether or not an oath was actually sworn to the Lord. They, and in this, they held various formula of speech to decide whether or not an oath was sworn to God. So according to these formula, swearing by the temple was different than swearing by the gold in the temple. Or swearing by the altar was different to swearing by the the gift on the altar. And we see this more, Jesus talks about it further in Matthew 23, 
And I think we have these verses to show you as well. Later on, he's talking to the same, uh, or partially the same audience, talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, Woe to you, blind guides. You who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold of the temple, or the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And so I hope you see that depending on the exact wording of your oath and which rabbi you spoke to to get a kind of an interpretation of it, you may or may not be bound to hold your oath because you may or may not have actually sworn to the Lord. So into that kind of understanding and application and interpretation of the law, Jesus speaks in verse 34, do not take an oath at all. And he makes clear through his following words the simple foolishness of their teaching. It doesn't matter, he says, whether you swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, God is behind and above everything and anything that you could swear by. Even swearing by the hairs on your head, you're swearing by what is in his control alone. Everything is spoken before God. And so a formula of speech doesn't make one oath more binding before God than another. And therefore Jesus says, fundamentally, oaths are unnecessary. And all our speech can and should be viewed the same just like a simple yes or no. Now, realizing that all of our words are spoken before God should have a transforming effect on how we view our words and our promises. See, just like me, I'm sure you and I together, our thinking is probably more influenced by the world and its ignorance of God than we initially realize. You see, the world doesn't need necessarily persuading of the importance and value of holding to our word when it's convenient. But it's not because of a deeply held conviction that everything is spoken before God. The world sees holding to or breaking its word in terms of perhaps financial cost. What's the financial penalty of breaking this contract? Or perhaps in terms of legal repercussions. If you lie in a law court, you could be convicted of the crime of perjury, for example. Or maybe just in terms of pragmatic results. We've all heard about the boy who cried wolf. You don't want that to happen to you, do you? Now those are true and potential consequences of not holding to your word. But when Jesus teaches that our words are always spoken before God, he is saying that Christians should, be think, should think of holding to our word not merely in terms of financial, legal, or pragmatic terms, but primarily in moral terms, in terms of relating to God. God is a moral being. He is, he is the supreme moral being. And as such, he defines right from wrong. We are to hold to our word for no other reason than God says it is right to do so. In addition to that, we are also moral beings created in God's image created to reflect him to one another and to the world around us. 
He intends his creatures to be faithful, to reflect him to the world. And therefore, for that reason, we should hold to our word. So what are the implications of that for us today? I'm guessing that few of us make a habit of swearing oaths by Jerusalem, perhaps. And it wouldn't mean much to you if I swore an oath by the hair of my head. So what's a more helpful application? Well, I think there's two implications um, that we can draw from this that are perhaps more relevant to us today. The first one is that there should be no inconsistency between holding to our word and who we say it to. There should be no inconsistency between holding to our word and who we say it to. If all is spoken before God, if everything's spoken before God, it means that you should hold to your word to your teacher that your work will be in by an agreed time, just as you should hold to your word to your parents that you, should be, you will be home by an agreed time. It means that you should hold to your word to your boss that you will work on his problem right away, just as you should hold to your word to your employee that you'll work on their problem right away. It means that you should hold to your word to your children that you'll take them to the park at the weekend, just as you should hold to your word to your spouse that you'll talk about that unresolved issue at the weekend. As Christians, there should be no inconsistency between holding to our word and who we say it to, because everything is spoken before God. And the second implication, if all is spoken before God, it means that we must also hold to our word regardless of the format of our word, or simply how we speak, or how it is written. So we should hold to our word, whether it's spoken with great care or in great haste whether it is printed and signed in a nice formal contract with a nice letterhead, or whether it's texted and full of emojis, whether it's signed and verified by a witness, or whether it's posted on Facebook. We should hold to our word because it is spoken before God. And holding to our word is a moral act before a moral and holy God, and therefore it does not change based on who we speak to, or how we speak it. So we must hold to our word because everything is spoken before God. Let's look at the second point then that Jesus is wanting us to see. So hopefully you're seeing that Jesus is showing us, revealing the standard of the, the kind of the height of the mountain of God's standard for speech. And he's doing it by revealing the summit, showing us that all is spoken before God. And so there's another way in which Jesus can reveal the height of the mountain before us of God's standard. It's not just by revealing the summit. It is by showing the depth of the valley. Let me look again at the very last verse of our passage. Verse 37 says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And other translations may say come from the evil one. Both versions are helpful to us and both, by God's grace, are intended to bring caution in using our words and conviction. Here, Jesus deepens the valley 
by teaching that we must hold to our word because anything else is evil. We must hold to our word because anything else is evil. Now, before we get too close into that, dig into that, we'll do that in just a minute, I want to be sure that we understand what Jesus is actually referring to. Is he saying that Christians should never swear a formal oath as we may be called to do so in a law court, for example? Or should Christians never really sign some sort of binding legal agreement and, and get witnesses called to that? I don't think so. If we recall what we know of God and what we know of this context, we've already seen that God gave direct instructions in the Old Testament to his people about swearing and keeping oaths. And there are even examples of God himself speaking an oath to his people. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 22, he says, By myself I have sworn I will surely bless you. And we know that God does not change and God is not a hypocrite. So Jesus is not forbidding the swearing of formal oaths when they may be required of us as Christians. So exactly what is Jesus referring to as evil? Well, it's helpful to remember now that Jesus is speaking against the teaching of the Pharisees who kept these strict and detailed formula to determine what was, was and what was not sworn to the Lord. And if you think about it, the purpose of that scrutiny, the purpose of that detail, was not to determine which oaths they had to hold to. No, in actual fact, the purpose of their system was to determine which oaths they could legitimately break. The whole structure of the Pharisees' teaching about oaths was not built on holding their word. It was built on breaking their word. Because anything they could determine wasn't really truly sworn to God, they saw nothing wrong with breaking it. And it's that practice of breaking your word that Jesus denounces as evil. But being familiar with Jesus' teachings in the surrounding passages regarding murder and adultery and how he applies those to matters of the heart, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus' denouncement goes far deeper than simple external practice. Because where does the Pharisees' practice come from of breaking their word? They have this system because in their hearts they want to break God's word. In their hearts they want to break God's moral law. And so it's the, both the practice and the underlying attitude of breaking their word, of desiring to break their word, that Jesus declares to be evil. Now, this probably doesn't come as a surprise. We've, we've already seen that holding to our word is a moral act before God. And so breaking our word must be, by definition, an immoral act against that same God. But we must be careful not to jump on too quickly, not just assume we've got that and, and move on. Being quick to accept right and wrong, what's good and bad, what is good and evil, doesn't mean we necessarily have thought through what that means in applying it to ourselves. Once again, we must be on guard against the world's influence. Their example is always before us, and we, we are a part of that. We, how easily we can ignore God and dismiss the severity of breaking our word. A simple, everyone does it. As long as no one's hurt or no one's found out, it's no big deal. I know for me that what I find troubling in the pursuit of holiness is not 
only how easily I can accept the world's standards, but how blind I am to realize when I've fallen into following in those ways. And so as I was preparing this message and reflecting on it again, God was gracious to, to show me times when I have dismissed the severity of breaking my word and dismissed the severity of my desire to break my word. Times that I fail to see my sin just as God sees it. Times when I've given my word to say, I'll pray for you, and not done it. And perhaps when I remember that I've not done it, not thinking it's that big a deal. Being quick to dismiss maybe guilt that will be attached to that, rather than addressing that before God. Times when I've dismissed my children's request for attention with a simple word, just a few more minutes, and they leave, taking me at my word. Whereas in my heart, my meaning was, go away, I'm busy. Even before my words are spoken to my children, I've never had any intention to hold to them. And other more subtle tricks that our hearts can play on us, play to me when I've said, yeah, I'll be at that meeting, and I've attended. But only because I couldn't think of a good enough excuse not to be there. I couldn't think of a good reason to get out of it without offending or damaging my reputation. And in those times, I've not been convicted about the desire of my heart to, to want to get out, to wiggle my way out from underneath something I've said. Rather, I've congratulated myself and taken pride in, in doing something, oblivious to how I need to submit my heart to God. Jesus' teaching, we must hold to our word, and that means with all of our heart, because anything else doesn't reflect our good and gracious Heavenly Father, but rather reflects the evil one, the father of lies. But Jesus is merciful, and he speaks truth into our blind and dark hearts. It's, it is God's kindness that as a great physician, he would reveal the deep depth of and the extent of our disease, the evil of our hearts, because without seeing our problem, without seeing the truth of it, we could never turn to him for the cure. And we're going to get to the cure in just a moment. But before we do, I wonder if some of you are already thinking about some questions or objections to holding to our word. And, and you're asking yourself, well, what about all those times when something comes up that keeps me from holding to my word? Things that, frankly, I've just got no control over. When I've said I'm going to meet someone at a certain time, and then I've got to stop everything to, fix, to change the baby's diaper that was just not a planned emergency. Or that time when um, I'm about to head out the door, uh, or I get in the car and, and then I'm stuck in traffic for 30 minutes. What about something more serious? I, that commitment I can no longer hold to because I've lost my job. All right, because I've now had to take care of a family medical emergency. Does God call that evil when I don't hold to my word because of these things I've got no control over? Well, to be honest with you, the Bible doesn't really give us a neat, simple answer to that. But I do know that God is the one who judges justly and sees clearly. And if you're a Christian, he is for you and not against you. But we should be thinking of that question, I think, in, in slightly different terms, or perhaps a bigger picture. Given all of the things that we are not in control of, and let's be honest, we're not in control of much, 
What is the attitude of your heart when you give your word and when you make a commitment? Do you give your word mindful of God, humbly submitted to his sovereign control over your life? Do you give your word mindless of God, thinking that your word should be a binding truth? under the perhaps careless assumption that you are in total control of your little universe. You see, God can and will use 101 different things in his control to show us that we are not God when we thoughtlessly assume that we are. God opposes the proud, and yet he gives grace to the humble. When you can't hold to your word because of things outside your control, Do you stop to hear God speaking to you and speaking to adjust your heart? I don't know about you, but previously I'd thought of those words in James chapter 4, verse 15, that teach we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I thought that those were perhaps just things Christians were supposed to say. Christians were supposed to tack on to their speech, a form of Christianese in their conversations. I'll see you at 7 o'clock, Lord willing. But seeing the seriousness of giving our word and holding to our word with all of our hearts, yes, we can say those words, add them on and say them to other people. Perhaps more importantly, we should be saying them to ourselves and pushing them into our hearts. That we should be slow to speak. And when we speak, our words and our promises should reflect our humility before God who isn't alone, is in control of our lives. And perhaps just a specific application for one or two here this morning. Maybe another struggle you have is that you have a hard time saying no to people, and therefore you say yes to everything, out of the desire, essentially, to, to please people. The irony being is that you, people are not pleased if you regularly cannot keep your words to all these things you've said yes to. Knowing that God is sovereign and that we can say, Lord willing, to our commitments should allow us to be honest and humble in, and even to display our weaknesses and our limitations before others. And perhaps we can, it, it frees us to say something perhaps more like, you know, I really want to help, but I can't with my current responsibilities. Or I can't until next month. Knowing the gravity and seriousness of holding to our word should shape how we assess and give our word to those around us. So that leads us to the cure that I mentioned. Jesus' words have revealed the mountain of God's standard for our speech. We must hold to our word because everything is spoken before God and because everything is and anything else is evil. But if that's God's standard, what hope do we have in meeting it? Yes, we must be submitted to God as we give our word, and we must strive to hold to our word. But if that's all we've got, if Jesus is simply showing us the height of the mountain, just to leave us to put on our hiking boots and tighten the straps on our backpacks and and to make for the summit, I don't know about you, but I don't have much confidence of getting there on my own. God's word exposes our sin in our practice of not holding to our word and in our attitude of not wanting to hold to our word. 
Jesus shows us not, that not only do we fall far short of God's righteous standard, but that our hearts are naturally opposed to his standard when it suits us. But that is not all that Jesus is looking to show us. Jesus doesn't intend to leave us without hope, miserable and condemned in our sin. He wants to show us his, our need for himself, our need for the gospel. And because Jesus has shown us that God's standard is righteousness in speech, yes, we must hold to our word, but we must do so as we hold to the gospel. Psalm 23, verse 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Brothers and sisters, according to God's righteous standards, none of us have pure hands and a clean heart. We all have at one time or another lifted our souls up to what is false and spoken deceitfully, carelessly or even deliberately breaking our word or desiring to do so. Left to ourselves, we are all unworthy to ascend God's holy hill. Left to ourselves, we are destined to stand to face God's judgment for our sin, which Scripture tells us would be an eternity of suffering under God's wrath. So fierce is his moral opposition to evil. But God has not left us to ourselves. In God's mercy and in his faithfulness to hold to his word, even when we have been unfaithful to him, he has given us his Son and the good news of the gospel. The Apostle John puts it this way in the opening chapter of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is one who perfectly holds to His Word. There is one whose heart is pure, and there is one who is worthy to ascend God's holy hill, and His name is Jesus Christ. But in the awesome mystery of the gospel, rather than ascending God's holy hill, the Son of God chose instead to descend that hill. And the perfect word of God was broken for us. Broken for you and I on the cross to bear your sin and my sin that we are helpless to get rid of by ourselves. To bear on the cross all the wrath of God that was us, ours to deserve. And he showed himself victorious over sin by raising from the dead once more to ascend God's holy hill. And so the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. If you're a Christian here this morning, as Jesus took your sin, it's my joy to remind you of his righteousness that he bestows upon you. 
so that God looks upon you and sees pure heart and clean hands. Jesus has borne your sin. And if God has brought conviction to your heart over a practice or attitude of breaking your word, he is for you. But he's not content for you to stay at the bottom of the hill. His response is to summon his children to himself. He says, I've done all that's necessary when you come and join me. In a moment as I close, I'm going to lead us in a time of a prayer, a prayer of repentance. And perhaps you'd pray with me. Perhaps you'd pray to commit in your heart to walk by the grace God gives to forgive receive forgiveness and grace to transform our hearts in obedience to God, obedience to his standards, to hold to our word with all of our hearts, trusting that we come to him in Christ's righteousness. It may be that in your heart you actually need, you recognize as well that God's calling you to apologize to someone. And I just want to say that saying, I forgot, sorry I forgot, is not an excuse. It's only the beginning of an apology. Again, being recipients of God's grace for forgiveness, we can complete that apology to one another. So I encourage you, be humble and have a courage to complete that apology by saying, I'm sorry I forgot. I'm sorry for breaking my words to you. Would you please forgive me? And God gives grace for that. If you're not yet a Christian, then I hope this morning you are seeing something of God's standards that Jesus is displaying this morning, that breaking your word in practice and in your heart is against who God is and against who God is like, and therefore it is right to call it evil. It keeps you from him, and it threatens to keep you from him forever. If, you do, if you're seeing that now this morning, then I, I hope you are encouraged to recognize that God is seeking to draw you to himself. He doesn't want you to leave this church this morning under a sense of condemnation. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I trust as I pray that you would consider praying with me also, asking God to forgive you for your sins and from turning from them, trusting that Jesus' death was for you and for your sins, that his righteousness, his holding to his word could be given to you. And you find grace for forgiveness and transformation. I trust this morning this passage serves to reveal the height and the depth of God's standard. That God calls us to this, but God gives grace through his son Jesus Christ. The word of God who was broken for us, but that gives us grace to hold to our word as we hold to the gospel. If I can ask the band to come up as I pray.